Here lies the body of Mam Tsamai Rosemary Mokhopa. When the heart stops pushing blood through the body, the brain is first to collapse. Having thought a whole life, it requires the most energy to operate and, without oxygen-rich blood moving through it, the cells begin to self-destruct, unthreading the pattern of memories, collapsing the monasteries, rotting the shrines she built for him. It's been four decades, Goko, and your skin is waxed mummification over your cheekbones that once rose as tall as the sun could sit and, oh, you were brilliant, they say. Your clothes and bones have not yet burned to chalk from the acid surrendered by your liver, Sibetisahau, your bile, your ambition. Something is still happening and, and things will continue to happen. You are still the young dead. Coco, do you furrow your brow when she or I cry? Does a stray heartbeat unsettle the dust pinching itself through the crevices in the corners of the void between us? I believe it is you that calls my name every so often. You that stiffens my thighs and makes my heart gallop, demanding of me to tell the truth. Uh, so thank you, Nakane, for being with us today. Um, a little bit of general context. So we're just like trying to poke a little bit, we're trying to question uh, the hegemony of blackness coming out of the United States of America and how influential that part of the world is and what that means. Uh, and just like how we puzzle that, just like how we have a conversation around queerness in a black South African context. And like, you know, what, 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 what. Like exactly, like it's um, less of a formal um, situation or anything, but honestly, mostly it's just an opportunity for us to make eyes at you, flirt you, say nice things, and uh, convince you that we are smart and listen to you say smart things. So yeah, I feel like I need. I feel like I'm. I'm the one who needs to listen. Oh no! I mean, this is all going to be so wonderful. I know it. I can already feel it. I'm so excited. So just go, babe. Just dive us in. Um, the tree. Just oh, so excited. Gorge. So I think one of the things that we were really interested in terms of your practice, Nagane, because you're a multidisciplinary artist working across many themes, genres, disciplines, styles, and we were really interested in terms of like to begin with your music, right? Wondering for you, how do you see the poetic, the way that you're making your music? And do you think of your songs as poems? Hmm. I didn't see my songs as poems until later, until I started, I went to university to study literature and where to study like actual, like lyric poetry and understanding in the Western realm, what a lyric poet poem is and that it was used for music and that it wasn't necessarily used to be read that it had to be sung its entire existence was about the song almost like the song couldn't exist without the poem and the poem couldn't exist without the song and for a long time i think i didn't take not that i didn't take lyrics seriously of course i did but i think that maybe even though hmm, 
even now it, this exists, this idea that quote unquote pop music doesn't have anything to say, right? And I've been working quite a, quite a bit with some classical musicians recently. And not that they didn't say that it doesn't have a lot of, that pop music doesn't have anything to say, but there is a sense that like, oh, I mean, it's not serious. And when I started writing music and writing lyrics, I wanted my songs to have an immediacy, but still be, but still be fucking like serious in terms of subject and topic. And in terms of the words I choose, I chose to use. But also because of the way I spoke and the kind of education that I got, the kind of parents that raised me, where I came from, coming from like Ekabeha, Port Elizabeth, which is a British colony. The schools are wildly British. Um, like I went to a school called Greenwood Primary School, and then I went to St. George's College. You know, so these are like super South England posh adjacent, <laughs> you know. So I, I've always believed that my lyrics are poems because they are because they are obsessed with image, right? And because they're obsessed, they don't necessarily narrative or linear in the way that maybe I would write a short story, this happened, this happened, this happened. Even though I've always wanted to be able to write a song like that, but for some reason I just, for me, I I rather work outside of time and outside of, outside of time as like as an arrow moving from left to right or up and down, whatever. But somehow work with time as something rounded, circular. And for me, that's why I think that's what creates the poetry, the imagery, how time is, et cetera, et cetera. Gorge. So there's a way in which, um, I love that connection that you make between the lyric poem in the kind of Western sense and the kind of like um, the Western canon and how the lyricism of the poem is intended to be sung. So there's a way in which the song or the sonic element of the poem and the poem element of the poem are the, they're codependent. Uh, they, they exist because of one another and they cannot exist without the other and how that kind of Western framework, Western reference applies, uh, what influences the way in which you consider or go about the thing of making music. And I would love if you could speak a little bit more about that process and how structurally, how the music happens for you and how the lyricism and the poetics come in, but also a little bit of the, the thematics and how the thematics have matured over time from Brave Confusion to The Laughing Sun to You Will Not Die and can you trace a little bit of that trajectory for us? Yeah, I can try to. <laughs> uh, you know, as influenced as I, as I am by the, so the genesis of what a lyric poem is, I'm also quite interested in the, the repetition, almost psychedelic repetition of Southern African words in music they may not necessarily i don't know if uh, they're called they're not called lyrics but the words sung in our music which as far as i know were used to conjure a sense of hypnotism right 
So that repetition is not laziness. The repetition serves something. It's a choice. Um, and I've always been interested in repetition. I've always been interested in repetition in music, in, in, um, in percussion, in words, melody. Um, and the first song from Brave Confusion, my first album that I was really proud of was a song called In the Dark Room. And it works with a, a repetitive guitar line. And I remember sort of when I started playing guitar, initially when I started playing guitar, I wanted to sound like, I don't know, Jeff Buckley and, and Leo Cohen. You know what I mean? Like, and then I heard this man who passed away by the time I figured him out. I mean, I, I found him out. And this was a guy called like Alifa Kature. You know, he was Malian. He was super cool as a farmer. I played badass guitar. And, the, and my idea of what a guitar was completely changed or what a guitar can do. And for me, actually, that guitar line from In the Dark Room is sort of a bastardization of an Kature song, which is much more complex than what I, I wrote at the time and could play at the time. But I remember just sitting, just walking around my house. I'll never forget this. It was the evening, and I was walking, walking around in my my house, and my, to the point where my mom was like, "Enough, go sleep now." And I was just playing this this guitar line, trying to find sort of polyrhythms with it, you know. And I started to wrote and I wrote in the dark room, using that line, using the, that. But I wanted to mix that kind of African repetition with a sort of, uh, hmm, how do I say this? Almost high-minded lyricism in how, in, um, in how I handled sex, shame, self-loathing, Maybe to distance myself from it, so that I could write, so that I could write about it. Because if I, if because if the lyrics were how I spoke, then I felt like maybe I wouldn't be able to get on stage and sing them. Right? But you create something. You almost create an edifice or a house or a structure, and you go, "Oh, here's this thing. Here's the song. It's a thing, and I can, I can use it." to say, hey, this thing didn't kill me. But there's different interpretations about what happened and why Noah ends up cursing him. And a lot of um, conservative you know, white supremacist people have said that that curse was black skin. And so when I named it The Laughing Sun, I was taking on the identity of Ham. So that's how I wrote the EP. There's a line in Blackened and Bruised, which it basically deals with that whole idea. And now I know that I loved what they hated in you, which is the thing, the curse. Reappropriating something that was maybe used to put it down, claiming it for yourself. But also a word, like a title like The Laughing Sun. So it's, I, I've never seen or heard a title like that in, in pop music. So I thought it sounded, I thought it sounded strange but also memorable maybe people would look at it and go what does that mean 
Yeah. And I also wanted to make an EP that was very influenced by continental African music, brass, jazz, but electronic, percussive, loud, banging. Not particularly interested in the pop form there. More interested in something free, free form. More interested in something like Urban Zulu by Musum Shlongo, where the songs just go round and round and, and, and they spin and they spin and they coil and they coil and they coil and they coil. And, they coil. and you think, oh my God, they, they, they sort of, they, 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 they're gonna self combust, but they don't. Somehow the tighter they get, they sort of find a way to wring themselves out and they expand again. That's what I was mostly interested in, you know? Mm. Mm, yes, mm, yes. <laughs> There's just so much. There's so much um, that I'm listening to and hearing and also nodding along to when I'm thinking about my own process, which is part of why uh, we asked you, why, why we're sitting down with you and, and listening to you speak in such a way. Um, it's also so deeply affirming in this process. Like, okay, yes, for sure. We start off um, and we set out on this intellectual journey, I suppose, but then we realize inside of the work and perhaps um, in, in different stages, but we then figure out that it's a heart journey, it's a spirit journey, it's good journey amoya also, um, in search of ourselves really, just to figure out why is it that we listen to the people that we're listening to and what, what, what does that do? How does that change us um, on a cellular level, on a spiritual level? Um, so when you were talking about the lyric poem as a kind of genesis that was so um, inextricable to the music that you were making that feels very close to me and like the training that I have um, the training in opera and jazz and choral union and how that was my first altar and I feel that Gopano and I um, we share that we share a relationship a complex relationship a painful relationship of course but with the church um, but this is how, um, through song and specifically jazz, um, how I understood rhythm, how I began to understand, um, how I began to understand rhythm as a poet. Uh, my first ideas were thinking of poetry was relating poetry to sound and remembering that it was women, black women, um, that first introduced me to the poetry of things. Um, and what women, specifically like South African women, what they can do with sound is incredible. How they can gather sound and how can they can find gaps in the air to find harmonics and harmonies and ways of connecting to the next voice next to you. And also ways of connecting to the voices beyond this place in these weird, beautiful, bendy shapes. Um, so yeah, wow, my brain is going pow, pow, pow. Um, <laughs> But I want, I want you to um, kind of take us through and walk us through this literary lineage that you find yourself inside um, as a writer, right? Because it's so interesting because I was going through um, Piggy Boy's Blues, your novel, your debut novel, the sweet, sweet offering that you gave us. And there are those patterns there that you feel so much of the prose feels quite British and verbose. <laughs> um, but then there's this sort of Anglican diocesan, St. Dunstan's ass sort of way that kind of creeps into um, the prose and the writing. Um, and I mean, for me too, for sure, I, I went to an Anglican school um, and I, I can feel 
and see how that obviously colors my speech and my relationship to words, my relationship to the English language, the twang, you know, um, which is also so political and is also a signal of uh, loss that this is a site of grief too, because this tongue that I have is also a tongue that alienates me. Um, that is also a, a marker of, of how I don't dream in my own language. This is how deeply in English has inf infiltrated my consciousness. So I feel you, I feel you, I feel you. <laughs> I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more around your practice of citation and influence and talking about your influences. Um, you read and, and you eat your sort of like literary diet, I suppose, is so omnivorous and so generous. It's so like voracious. Your hunger is something that I, um, that I connect with very deeply. So tell me, um, who did you pick up first that set off this appetite for such an eclectic omnivorous diet of literature? Huh. Who did I pick up first? It was a bunch of short stories. It was an, an anthology edited by Zadie Smith, actually. I forgot what it's called, but there was a story there by Colm Tobin, the Irish writer. At the time, actually, I was, I was in initiation and I wasn't allowed to bring my books with me or my guitars, whatever. And my uncle smuggled in as a Christian at the time, my Bible and that book, that book of short stories, and also brought in my guitar. Uh, and so every time someone would come, like around my tent, sort of hide the books underneath the pool, like underneath the, the bed. But there was a short story there that was so beautiful. And I remember one afternoon, lonely, lonely afternoon, I always wanted to be a musician. I understood that I wanted to be a musician. I didn't know up until later that I wanted to become a songwriter. I knew that I wanted to be a singer because I could always sing. And, but I still remember that moment in initiation, I thought, huh, I love this as much as music. I love this as much as music. And that was quite, Devastating, actually, <laughs> because I never thought that I would love something as much as music. It's devastating. That's quite a word. Yeah, devastating because music was always this, this, this thing that could never, ever be usurped, ever, by anything. And so if I loved this thing as much as music, that meant that I had to do it, too. And I didn't know that I could do it. And so I knew that the first thing I had to do was to to gobble up everything that I, I found that I thought might be good. And so I followed my nose. I, those, I started with those short stories and I felt, I was like, oh, Colin Tobin is brilliant. I found out about him and I read a lot of his novels. And then I read Zadie Smith's novels. I read, this was, this was just before I discovered James Baldwin, which was, really the beginning of my life. And, and I think, I mean, James Bolden almost sounds cliche now because everyone's like, James Bolden. And there's a part of me that's like, I should stop talking about James Bolden because it's not, I'm like, no, 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 no. You know, why would you do something like that? Something so beautiful. And so for me, before I discovered James Bolden, 
I was looking for queer literature and it was just white guys that I, I knew of about Michael Cunningham. And Michael Cunningham's literature was becoming more bourgeois with each book, right? And I just couldn't, not that I should see myself in, in, in every book, like I don't have to be represented by everything. I don't think that people should be, should, like it's just impossible, right? To be represented in everything. But I just thought that the books were what I was interested in. I wasn't interested in which pretty white guys crying about nothing, right? Um, yeah, I was just, I still remember it was, I can't remember, it's, I think it was the novel after, after the hours. And I was reading it, I was in bed, I was reading it and I was, and it was the first time I'd ever done this. I was so annoyed with all the characters that I took the book and I threw it away from me. I was like, there's nothing here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the December of after I'd written my, my my metric exams, and I was alone with my dad for some reason. My mom, everyone was at the house, but dad was in the house. And I I got a ladder and I climbed up and I went to the cupboards to look through my dad's books, university books. And there was, it was mostly just law stuff because he studied law and business. I was like, no, I understand, no, I understand, no, I understand. And I found this novel, James Baldwin, just above my head. And I thought, this is interesting. This is the only novel that's here. Googled it. Huh. Friends of Toni Morrison. I, of course, I already loved Toni Morrison at the time. I was like, huh, okay. Okay. Gay. Okay. Black. Mm, all right. And I started. Okay. All right. This seems like exactly what I need. And I've never been the same again. Because here was somebody in a different country, in a different era, dead. And there I was. And I could exist. I could exist widely, like broadly, in a way that I never understood. I never knew I could exist. And in a way, like I could enjoy things that maybe my white friends were like, that's not cool. You know, you know, you know, like when we used to, I don't know if you guys did this, maybe I'm pathetic, but like you'd like something and you show it to your white friends, they're like, it's not cool. And then suddenly you're like, oh yeah, maybe it's not cool. And then years later, they were like, oh, this is cool. I was like, but I showed it to you five years ago. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Now that Pitchfork and The Guardian are saying it's cool, now it's cool. When we said it was cool, it wasn't cool. I don't understand, like... That part. Right? Mm, and I... You're making me think so much, like maybe just to rewind a little bit, like when you were talking about, you know, call me by your name, then I'm thinking of course of like, what for me exists as the antecedent or it's, um, it's almost an antagonist or, or protagonist, which is Moonlight, right? Which is like, for me, that's like a movie that, that even though they're tackling the same thematics, it's like diametrically opposed in so many 
not only in like the perspective, but also the kind of quality of the, the cinematography, uh, the difference is really striking. Like the, the cinematography of Moonlight is so like uh, magic hour seat, right? Mm, it's like tactile. Uh, Ooh, it's, it's that deep blue, right? Mm, this texture. Mm -mm. And, and then you have to kind of, um, you have the kind of lazy Italian Riera sepia tone nostalgia of Call Me By Your Name, right? Um, yeah. It's so up in the clouds. It's so, it's so wistful, right? It's almost like, it reminds me, and this might be a, a, a reference that doesn't make any sense, but there's this scene in, um, the Terrence Malik film. Um, but there's a part where the mom is putting up the washing and then suddenly, suddenly she starts. Oh, true of life. True of life. Oh, yeah. And in the film, yeah. that film sort of makes sense. But Call Me By Your Name is sort of like that. It's like, it's so, its feet are not on the ground dreamy but in a way that's um so removed from reality yeah exactly it's it's idyllic yeah and so connected to this like very cis <laughs> like white um like global not even like global north but like european but specifically european in that way like sometimes america looks to mama like or like daddy i suppose in that way for its own nostalgia and its obsession with like Twinkie youth, <laughs> like this kind of hairless androgyny, <laughs> but very coded in a, in a way where and androgyny is still so, so imperial. I find it so beautiful that um, you had already created this like tether for yourself, even before you found uh, elders like James Baldwin. And I think that um. I had a conversation with a love of mine talking about James Baldwin as well. And I feel like all of us met him when we needed to. I feel like he arrived to me when I needed him most. And he's that kind of, um, like, without trying to bastardize anything at all or to flatten or trivialize or, like, make something sound facile or whatever. But, like, he was our Lizzie. Like, he's our Lizzie, like, in a way, you know? He's like a... Do you know what I mean? Like, in that it's guardian deep... Um, he gave, he gave so much. And then also thinking about this idea of a canon, now that you're building for yourself and what we're trying to build for ourselves. But I think that we are at this point in, in the canon and thinking about it where we want to ask critical questions to say, what are we building and who are we building it for? And what are we, where do we find ourselves? You know, you found James. Um, it's beautiful that you, that you, created this sort of like black queer um like poetic lineage I suppose which is so um, multi-directional and it's thinking and you're thinking in so many different directions so, and I love that so much entirely yeah I mean there was also then I went to, I went to university right and then I just and then I discover mm. and something that I just reread and finished rereading a few days ago Fools and Other Stories by Jabola and Sindabele and, I saw you post, yeah. And so there's one thing about reading something in university and you have to read it. And you go, oh yeah, this is kind of brilliant. Oh, I have to write an essay about it. So I'm not reading it at a pleasure. I'm not enjoying it. Mm. I'm enjoying it, but I'm not enjoying it for me. I'm just enjoying it so that I can be smart about it. Coming back to it almost 10 years late. No, like 12 years later, I was just... Now I remember why I was so drawn to that book. And it's because that's 
I mean, Njabola showed us, and he's like Smdao with with um, ways of dying, that black people could be whatever they wanted to be. Yes, sure, the oppression was happening in the background and you can't dislodge yourself from it, but there's more to our lives than shit that's done by white people. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking like how in our own thinking about our own Southern African and South African lineage, there's this beautiful, gorgeous dance in the rain, I suppose, metaphorical dance in the rain that happens between the 1950s and the 1960s, peaking in the 1950s peaking in Sophia town um we have these beautiful writers these hedonistic writers drunken sex field gorgeous jazzy writers that were so you know um i'm thinking about kantemba you know and and the drum writers i'm listening to you now right at the beginning when you were talking about how your lyrics and your poems they're so queer and by virtue of them being obsessed with image um that's definitely you feel i see that line that's that line from the 1950s, it's so alive in your work. And that's a, a lineage that we saw and that we see in our drama, in our literature, in our music, and thinking of our poets as, as well. Like there's, there's a commitment to imagery and joy and pleasure, but there's also this deep um, uh, laser-like um, and brave um, turn towards looking at a political situation unfolding um, and, and, and juxtaposing that with the drama and a theater of black life and not insisting on cutting out the parts where we are also um, trying to get free while also remembering that we are free, have always been free too. Um, so yeah. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which takes an incredible amount of chutzpah. Like, how do you, there's this incredible line actually right at the end of Falls because he's almost, like he doesn't want to talk about a party. He refuses to talk about a party. He refuses to give it space in his, in, in, like in his book, in Fools and Other Stories. Instead, he's interested in innocent, he's interested in black people being, being full, like being, because sometimes also with um, political literature, people can sort of make them almost angels, right? And, but no, he's, he's interested in, in them being, you know, bad people, good people, people that do bad things, people that do good things, et cetera, et cetera. But right in the last five pages of Fools, he, he fucking goes for it. And it, it's almost like the poetry is out the window. And he's, he's allowed, like he's allowed himself to be pissed off for five pages. And there's this one beautiful line where he says, well, at least the, the narrator says, my presence was what was his defeat. I was here. And there was nothing that that person could do about that. And for me, I've almost been mulling on that line <laughs> a few days because it almost, go, 
it, it constant that constant fight to exist in the world as whatever version of yourself that you want to be that day, that hour, is exhausting, right? You step out the door and you're already in self-defense mode. And to remind yourself that you don't need to do anything but just be there is so beautiful. Existence as resistance. Yeah. Everything else is extra almost. It's like, it's supposed to do, yes, we fight, yes, we, yes, all of it is important. But don't forget to be there. Mm-hmm. Just, just be there. Mm. Be present. Belief system, such bright bulb colors watered down. From lifetime to lifetime to lifeline, still here we're still here we're still. And for me, that's, that's just almost revolutionized how I'm thinking about things at the moment. Yeah. Because, because I, I meet friends, I speak to black friends, and it's almost like our oppressors are the only things that we talk about all the time. Right? And it's like, it's great that finally we can, we, we can come together and sort of, talk and be angry or whatever but this can't be the thing <laughs> this can't be the thing that you always talk about we have we have lives we have rich lives mm-hmm. and i think because maybe we do that the only place that we allow ourselves to feel joy is in the work mm-hmm. and that's beautiful but that's also sad yeah it's complex it's like um I mean, you're obviously making me think of uh, Umam Toni Morrison, who says that thing about, you know, the distraction of racism, the distraction of sexism, and how it keeps you actually away from doing your work because you're constantly responding, uh, providing or dredging up history as, a, you know, trying to make a case for your existence. And then this line that you come to with, you know, the, the rebuttal that is like, my presence was his defeat my mere existence as resistance was his defeat. I want to bring us back to the kind of the form that we were speaking about before. We, we've spoken about music, we've spoken about literature. And one of the other things that you, one of the other mediums that you operate in is cinema. So we were really interested in talking about, because number one, I also went to a diocesan um, colonial imperial, imperial establishment by the name of Michael House. So I'm with you, number one. Uh, number two, I've also been, uh, like a lot of the dance work that I've done and a lot of the theater work that I've done, uh, for example, was in a play by, I was in a play by Neil Coppin. Um, I've done a lot of work where I am a black subject under white direction, right? A white lens. So we were quite interested in your navigation uh, because, you know, Ngaiba was a film that had a lot of critical acclaim. Um, and now I'm in Belgium, right? And like when, when I tell people, you know, I'm South African, there's a lot of the time the first reference that people have simply because that film is so brilliant um, and it's unappreciated in its own context. Uh, but that's a conversation. 
Um, so we're quite interested, right? Like, because there's this complexity that we engage with as black subjects when it appears that there is a white directional white lens. And there's this kind of like very simplistic way that people analyze that. And a lot of agency is taken away from black people that are collaborating with white people. So we were just wondering for you, what is that relationality? How do you navigate that? And how does it, I mean, because it clearly manifests in the work in the sense that, you know, you very directly talk about the influences of Christianity in the work that you do. And you alchemize the work, right? You alchemize Christianity, these white references into something completely other. So there's this way in which you're working it. Like, you're breaking exactly, the spine oh, exactly. of it. Using it, right? And a few years ago, it was a little bit angry, yeah, than it is now. A few years ago, I was like, this, this thing used me to break me, and now I will use it. And I can use it however I want, whether it's blasphemous, whether it's, it's in, it's, whether it's in, um, whether it's like for its glory, whatever, because the Bible itself is quite, a, it's an incredible piece of literature. Bonkers, like, Bonkers, like nuts. Like, <laughs> I don't understand how that is a religious book, if you, if you are being honest, because it's pretty insane. Like, the most psychedelic book I've ever read. Like, Revelations is, I'm yet to read fantasy or sci fi that is that crazy. Say it, say it, <laughs> say it. Wake it up. You know, so, so I was like, and this is something very interesting actually that um, Hanif Qureshi wrote about in the Black Album, where, oh, that story is, I can't remember the story, it's so long ago that I read it, but I think there's a part where in the curriculum, because it's set in the, in the university, they, they say that Black and Brown students should only read and study Black and Brown people. And one of the things that the narrator says is that I will not be limited in what I take, like what I enjoy, what I can learn from. And I've always, I've always really, I've always believed that what is good is good is good is good is good. But let's also understand that certain pieces of art by black and brown people are not in the foreground because they haven't, because they've been in the background. So we need to seek them out and we need to, like, we're still, like, kids these days don't realize how lucky they are. Like, the, the amount of work that we had to do just to find a Black writer that you liked. Because you had no one to show you who those people were. So you, sometimes you found them a mistake or there was the internet and it's only now that like it's so it's so everywhere but before then like to have a laptop in your house or a, a pc was a big deal you know and this is showing like my age and stuff you know <laughs> age where 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 is that wait show me i i don't i don't know i don't know i keep on the next and i'll see I don't see a damn a goddamn. Okay. But I've always believed I have power in the relationships I've had with my collaborators. Perhaps they thought that they, they maybe they thought that they were in control, 
but I've never done anything I didn't want to do, ever. And I was, and I know for a fact that the character of Golani in like in England was half created by me. Yes, John and Tando wrote him, but I, I made him a human being. I went to the audition dressed the way that he ended up dressed in the film because I had in my mind an idea of what kind of character he is. I, so maybe I, I didn't go there guns blazing going, I mean, I had power, which is not power, <laughs> which is not power. The, 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 why, why, why so loud? As Tony Morrison says, why so loud? <laughs> you know, it's, I knew what I was doing. I knew I was talented. I, when I disagreed, I disagreed. I was like, mm, they wouldn't do that. And so one thing that directors don't tell you that they, ne they never tell people that they ask actors what they think. Do you think he would do that? So this collaboration is not on one side. Um, I do want to do something. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I've always wanted to do this. Um, I want to read the moment that this book Piggy Boys Blues changed my life. Okay, if there's a way of giving that back to you, just to thank you, but just to like, I, I, um, I struggle <laughs> to express gratitude, especially if it's very deep and extremely spiritual. But I hope that me just reading your words back to you can like give you something of what it is that you've given all of us but anyway this is the moment where my life changed <laughs> you know um when you were talking about I don't even know what a, that a guitar could do that that you when you were speaking that you didn't even know that a, a guitar could do that this was the moment where I was like I didn't know that prose could do that so close to me like it's just right here like that kind of just here like oh my god and they're queer as fuck and then you came out as non-binary and then I was crying and I was like ah I'm not alone I'm not alone you know it's beautiful anyway so so thank you for this and I want to give this back to you and to tell you this is me telling you how much I love you in this way I am afraid I do not have the capacity to even begin to speak about the unspeakable. Even now, at this very hour, it is past midnight and I am still battling to sleep. I am struggling to articulate the words. I have tried writing them down as we were taught in school, simple letters to express feelings that are sent to no one. But all I see on the paper are blurred patterns meant to convey something lucid and plain. Thoughts are restless in my mind like a disturbed rodent. I shut my eyes and see the words individually. They whirl around in there like a dead leaf caught in a whirlpool. All is in conflict. Thoughts are like opposing currents meeting. On paper, I wish to write clearly and plainly about the havoc that has been wreaked on me. I had planned to say my body instead of me, but at that moment, I realized how all-encompassing that event was. It is a wide net. It is an ocean and not a river. It is some unknowable, expansive tundra, and I have nowhere to hide. Yeah, uh, yeah, you did that, hey? You, do you know that? That's 
do you uh, answer answer for your crimes I mean answer wow just thank you I remember writing that I remember writing that I was was at the Jakarta offices and I was finishing it and they'd allowed me to finish it in the back offices and Tabitha kept on coming did he do anything (laughs) and I was just like I remember that line that whirlpool line because I'd had it for years. Mm. And wow, thank I don't thank you. It's so sad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we sad bitches that shit. It's okay. It's really fine. It's bad. By the way, your book but well, just arrived like last week. Yay. Ooh. And yours is arriving today. <laughs> so it's a call, huh? Babesies. But I just love the time that we're living in. And I just Does it, what a time. <laughs> like, like, and we are all gonna do the things. Like that's the thing. Like before it was like one here, one there. All of us are doing it's all it. over. <laughs> but um you made us possible. You're making us possible, even as you're making yourself possible, even as you're creating new worlds, even if you yourself feel a little impossible. I know all you were doing was facing the work. All you were doing was trying. You were trying to do your own shit. And then you did this. I mean, answer for your crimes, please. (laughs) You better bring the conversation right around. I see you. All right, back to you. Okay, okay, because... No, really, 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 really. Okay, you really, it's beautiful. And I'm like, I'm pinching myself that we're doing this work parallel, like next to you, you know, like we're touching each other here and there and we're loving up on each other, like squeezing a hand here, you know, winking over here and and, um, in this beautiful sort of like circular, gorgeous ring of chorus, I suppose, of, of citation. And I think, speaking for myself I'm doing it I mean I'm I'm so in love with you and so in love with you both like it's just such a privilege to be making work and doing this and witnessing your work and learning to be fluent in you just amen 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 yo learning to be fluent in you you better go ahead okay thank you so much I'm I'm happy are you happy Kapanna? I'm very happy. Thank you, beloveds. Thank you for taking the time, Nakana. It's been such a joy. It's the creative witch work lineage of my grandmother's hand soothing me out of sleep under the cover of darkness after preparing sweet porridge for me to eat before going to Kretsch, Katran's pot. The lineage that carries in it the musings of Selodega and Lebo Matosa's voice, and Brenda Fassi telling us how she loves drinking Hansa and Tufak. It's the lineage of making the most beautiful, beautiful, the most tasty, delicious, out of, out of an inherited space of nothingness. And when I say nothingness, I don't mean it because we as a people, we, the queer, black, trans, 
them easily disposable and disregarded or so they say i don't say it because we are lacking i say it because the world in trying to run off with all of our stuff had to make us believe that we were lacking it's the lineage of refusing this naming refusing to be made a swirling mess of silence <laughs> yeah thank you to <laughs> thank you thank you thank you so much to uh, the poetry foundation our fantastic producer maya mcdonald our fabulous guest nakane our other fabulous guest kolega putuma our wonderful array of uh, voice note contributions, Gnome Hopa, Felaguchi, Lindivim Tama, Google to Doma, and a uh, special thanks to Denise Smith <laughs> and Jenna Wortham and, and our all our gorgeous listeners. Thank you for listening to us to yeah. babble and be cute and nerdy and yeah. queer and slutty for history and discourse. How delicious of you. Yeah. You know, thank you. you. Thank you so much. We are so grateful. Slide into our DMs. <laughs> Please. We're cute. Hey, belief system, such bright bulb colors watered down. From lifetime to lifetime to lifeline, still here we're still here we're still darkness so defined, memories they collide, a cauldron of chemicals to descend. Down, down, down From stark, stoic simulation Freedom found in fragmentation Omnipresent deaths and deaths and deaths And endless openings apart of you Apart from you Omnipresent here, still here Wish you were here Oceans they clear, oceans they clear, wish you were here.